You're listening to the Worldwide Underground. This is episode number eight. I'm your host, Gabriel Teodros. And I hope you know by now, this is an experiment in long-form storytelling. I'm having conversations with people that inspire me in life in the hopes that they might inspire you too. We also hope to shine a light on underheard stories behind music, arts, culture. And I'm realizing with this episode in particular that we're really just talking about storytelling across all mediums. I just so happen to come from hip hop, but as you can see with every episode, we're stretching way beyond just music. Today's guest is someone very near and dear to my heart. So near and dear to my heart that I went and married her. Her name is Ijoma Oluo. And she's getting ready to release her third book. Comes out in just a few days. It's called Be a Revolution. How everyday people are fighting oppression and changing the world and how you can too. See, Joma's third book, dealing with the issue of race in America, starting, of course, with the New York Times bestseller, So You Want to Talk About Race. The second book, another classic called Mediocre, The Dangerous Legacy of White Male America. And this one, Be a Revolution, Three Vital Texts. I got to say this one, she wrote this one for us, y'all. I mean, she wrote every book for us, but this one, I really feel like it's a classic for our generation, for the movement, for Seattle, for the Northwest and beyond. I just can't wait for y'all to jump into this book and to hear this conversation. I want to thank everyone who supports the Worldwide Underground. This show is made possible completely by the listeners. If you want to tap in, and help support the storytelling that we've got going on over here. Be sure to subscribe. GabrielTeodros.substack.com Ijoma also is absolutely the reason that I'm even messing with Substack. So go ahead and over to, head over to her Substack as well. You'll be glad you did. IjomaOluo.substack.com And uh, yeah, in the description of this episode, I have a link up where you can pre-order the book. Those first week sales are important for any writer. We talk about why in this episode. And uh, there's also tour information on that website that I'll have linked up. We're gonna be in Brooklyn, New York on the day that the book is launched, doing an event January 30th, followed by DC on the 31st, Baltimore, Atlanta, Detroit, Toronto, and then back in Seattle for two events on February 8th and 9th. Hope to see y'all at one of the events, in person or virtually. With no further ado, here's my conversation with the brilliant author, Ijoma Olua. Thank y'all for being here once again. Hey, hey, it's the Worldwide Underground. It's my joy and pleasure to introduce you to my spouse, the love of my life, Ijoma Olua. How are you doing? I am well. How are you? I'm good. For people wondering, we are not in the same place right now. Uh, you're at your new office. You want to tell people about the office? Yeah. Um, 
this is kind of the result of months and months of prodding from my therapist to get a space outside of the house where I can't mm -hmm. be mom all of the time and interrupted and have a little bit of quiet and time to be creative and a new room to decorate, you know, yes. so I'm loving it. I love it. Yeah. And I'm in my studio at home. Um, and I was saving this interview for the release of your book. And we are here. Be a revolution. Mm -hmm. How everyday people are fighting oppression and changing the world and how you can too. I am so excited about the world reading this book. Um, I'm lucky for so many reasons. And I think one of many reasons that I'm lucky to be married to you is that I got to read every chapter of this book as you finish writing them. <laughs> so I have a very, very personal connection to this book. I'm lucky reasons. too to have someone who is eager to read every, not only every chapter, multiple versions yeah. of every chapter of a very long book. And I love every page of it, every moment of it, you know? It's a lot easier for me than it is for you to write the book. <laughs> <laughs> um, so for people that don't have this inside look, how would you, how would you describe this book to people? Um, I would say I, I, I usually describe it first with kind of the reason why it exists. Um, mm -hmm. If you've been doing work around race or racism or honestly just kind of existing as a racialized person in the United States, I think we all share this general frustration of trying to talk about issues of racism and especially systemic racism and having this kind of sympathetic, oh, it's so bad and I wish there was something I could do and this dismissal. And I think especially in light of 2020, and how many emotions were heightened and how many people cared and did very little. I really wanted to take some time to not only show that something could be done, but that things have been done, that things are being done every day, that the reason why you, know, you and I exist as black people in this country are because of things that people have done and continue to do. And I wanted to, not only for my own personal reasons, spend time in that, um, I wanted to celebrate it and I wanted to kind of take away this excuse from people who think there's nothing to do. And, and, and to be fair, it's an excuse that isn't just, I think, kind of born in a selfish place. It's something, it's an idea that's perpetrated purposefully, you know, this idea that it is too big and you can't do anything. So why even try that? That idea exists because it serves, you know, um, these systems that are exploiting so many of us. Absolutely. Yeah. One, one of the themes that we've been talking about on this podcast from episode to episode is how so many of the oppressive systems that we see held up from here in the United States to even what's happening in, in Gaza and in Palestine is because there's a war of stories, you know, and people will believe these lies. And when you believe these lies that are just told by one oppressive system, it becomes easier to dehumanize someone and justify like atrocious violence, right? So I think that the work that we do as storytellers in different ways, right? Because I think of musicians and DJs and writers, obviously as storytellers, like it's the one thing that, that unites everyone who's on this podcast is that we all are engaged in storytelling in some way. Um, I think what you did with this book is, is so powerful because it's it's uncovering so many of those stories and histories that don't get written about, right? Um, from movement histories and 
in the parts of the movement history that doesn't really get like a light shown on it. You're talking about like the effects of certain, you know, projects and campaigns that have happened around the country, but you're talking to the people that have done it. And in, in these pages, like people will read about like the shortcomings and the, and the questions and, you know, even the self doubt that, that people go through and how it really is like everyday people that are working to change the world. But as those stories get erased, people believe it's not possible, you know? So I don't know with all that, like, what are, what are some of your like favorite um, stories and stories that surprised you doing research for this book? Cause I know you interviewed like, was it 40 some people? Yeah. Um, there are 34 people profiled 34. in the book and I, and I spoke with quite a few more of it, you know, for other reasons. And uh, I was regularly surprised by people, whether it was hearing their stories, some of the surprising ways in which people come to this work, um, their methodologies, uh, people shared ideas that really challenged me. And, you know, you were, you were right there for it. You, you know, often I would come into your studio after Mm -hmm. (laughs) a discussion, or we would meet up after, you know, when we were on the road, talking with people and I would just be like, ah, wow, that's, uh, I need to process this. This is really challenging the way I think about these issues. You know, um, I even said in the book, you know, the, the chapter on the section on, you know, the hierarchies of bodies and mind, looking at disability, justice, and race, Mm -hmm. um, fundamentally challenged and changed me and the discussions I had in there really did. Um, And then also I would say, you know, overall a theme that challenged me, you know, that I kept, I don't know, surprised me, didn't really challenge me, was just realizing how often people had to flow with the work and had to let the work change to fit their needs and where they were and the needs of community. And almost no one I spoke to was doing the work they had started out doing, but they were still doing the work. Mm-hmm. And that it is okay to say, you know, this is taking too much out of me now and I need to move into another space or my skills don't serve this anymore or it doesn't serve me anymore. And I need to move into this space and how important that is if you want to be able to do this for your entire life. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, there's two things in that, like one is, uh, disability justice. Like I, I love that chapter, but I also just want to highlight that I think you did a beautiful job of weaving disability justice throughout the entire book. It's not just one section, you know, and, um, it's one of my favorite things about this book. Um, and also, yeah, not, not continuing to do the work that you started. That actually makes me think a bit about uh, your career in writing and something I was hoping we could talk about because you like remind me what age you were when you first started writing taking it seriously oh like for 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 work like publicly writing yeah I would have been 33 33 yeah and then when was and then how old were you when your first book came out I was 30 almost yeah, I was 37. Yeah. I love it. I love it. I just remember, you know, being in my 20s thinking like, oh, it's too late, <laughs> you know, and here you are starting a career like in your late 30s. And I have to say, like, now that we're both in our 40s, like this is my favorite decade so far, you know? 
Yeah. yeah. No, it's, it, it's, uh, it's wild to me, you know, as a parent, I see this a lot too. And, and you've got to see this too. Now as a step parent, mm -hmm. the pressure on young people and this idea that if they don't have it all figured out, you know, by 18, their life is over. Or if they fail a class at 15, their life is over. And not only do you not really know who you are at that age, you're, you you may know your one version of who you're going to be of the many yous you'll be over your lifetime and it isn't too late and we have to live our life like that like there is still opportunity until the day that we die and there's beauty in that in knowing you can always change course in in knowing that you're still building to something yeah. um and i feel really blessed um, to have come back to writing, which was my childhood love later in life, actually very mm -hmm. glad that it w worked the way it did, because I know now on a deeper level, having watched the shift, being able to make this shift that I can do it again and again and again and again, yeah. and it may not always work out, but then I can do it again. And mm -hmm. it's beautiful. Life is an adventure. And my writing is an adventure, but you know, life in general, if, if I woke up tomorrow and couldn't write, um, of course I would have to process and grieve that. But the idea that I would be done, no, you know, yeah. and, and I'm so happy that I was able to discover that. And I really want, you know, when I'm talking in colleges or high schools, I really want these young people who are really feeling, um, this pressure and especially young people coming out of um, the early years of this ongoing pandemic, feeling like they lost vital time, like they're behind, which is impossible. When we all lost three years of our lives, how can you be behind? But right. that's what we're telling young people that they have to catch up, that they fell behind somehow. Um, instead of you have a long life and you yeah. are where you are and we're so glad you're here and now you get to shape something new and none of it has to be permanent and exactly. you know it can if it doesn't serve you you can let it go like that's such a beautiful thing that we're not telling young people and i'm trying so desperately to get that message out to them whenever you know i have the privilege of being with young people yeah it's such a liberating feeling and thought you know and i wonder like if you had started you know a career in writing in your 20s would you have this perspective now you know mm -hmm. no i don't think i would i really yeah. don't you know um i think i would have been you know struggling and building and tired and it would have i would have been in that striving space instead mm -hmm. of a thriving space and i probably would have burned out you know yeah. and I'm, I'm so glad now to be able to see it as you know an opportunity um and, and in order for it to be a choice, something that I, I was able to deliberately move into, knowing that it suited me, knowing myself more, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's real. You know, we don't tell, we don't tell young people enough, but I think people of all ages can feel stuck in a career or an identity or even an idea. Like, I know personally, you've seen it more than anyone. I've been going through it. Um, just since leaving KXP, mm -hmm. you know, having, I, I have moments sometimes where like my mind knows 
it was not a mistake, you know, but there's some part of me that's like, ah, oh, I walked away or, or, or I gave up something important, but I don't know. I just, I love that you are there to remind me, not just because you actually remind me, but also in your life, like in the way that you, you've walked through this world, that there's always time to redefine and reinvent yourself. And as long as we're in this body, like we've got time to, to try new things, you know? So mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. It's a trip being in this, like this space in between, you know, where yeah. this interview wouldn't have happened by the way, on KXP, because it would have been a conflict of interest. <laughs> right. And I'm, I'm so excited for you, love. And, Thank and, you. you know, I'll, I'll hold that space of being excited for you in the times when you, you forget to be excited <laughs> for yourself when it's harder to be excited for yourself. Um, you know, you're, and it's funny because, you know, being your partner, right. Mm -hmm. I saw you trying to adjust to being someone who did work, uh, <laughs> 40 hour, you know? Yeah, it was different. It was right? different. Yeah. Right. And, and, you know, that was awkward for you and that was an adjustment. And it's easy to forget that once that adjustment's made that, you know, yeah. who you are at core and the potential of who you are doesn't have a title, you know, and doesn't have a particular salary. It's you. And it might, and it might not be what people expect also. Mm -hmm. you know? And this is just like, I don't mean to sit here and talk about myself, but it's an easy example for anyone who's, you know, going through similar things at any age in life. You know, sometimes it might, might, it might not make sense to people, but you know something about yourself and in you. And I think you had a similar moment when you quit your job and decided to do writing for, for, for a full-time job. Can you, can you talk about what that transition was like for you when you first? Yeah. I mean, yeah. it was wild because it was one of the few times, it was one of the first times I made a major decision that just chose myself. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I had been raised to think of other people first, to think of the needs of my family first. And that's something as an oldest child, as a black woman, as a mother, you know, that um, I felt and so much of my life had been structured around that. And I had a good job, you know, um, like you at KXP, I was making more than I had ever made in my life. Um, mm -hmm. I had bought a home and it was like something took over me. Once I opened the door to that authenticity, and I would say, I think, you know, love, I saw that with you as well when you started producing more and yeah. reawakening this, you know, you've always loved music, but reawakening the love of creating music oh, in yeah. yourself. Pro producing is, is unlocked something different in me, for sure. I have not been this excited about music in the last, like, 15 years as I have in the last one year. It's, been so, it's been so fun to watch. I Thank love you. it. I can't wait for the world to find out too. I don't mm -hmm. think they really know yet. <laughs> no. Well, and you're just getting started. I yeah. don't think you really know yet. That's like, true. There's so much, there's so much in there. Like it's so fun to watch you surprise yourself with what you can do. And, you know, for me, it was, it was this thing too, where it's like, once you open that door to that authenticity, um, that little bit of something that really serves this need in you that's deeper and more longstanding than those immediate needs. Right. And, and I, and I want to be clear, those immediate needs are real. I don't regret yeah. any of the time I spent 
doing what I had to do to pay my bills, feed myself and my children, you know, like that matter. Yeah. And those choices were real. And, and there were times where the idea of leaving and writing not only wouldn't have occurred to me, but wouldn't have been feasible. Uh, you know, one of, one of the things that I think I get a front row for that a lot of people don't know about you is um, how giving you are when it comes to um, advice um, and helping out other writers of color um, navigating the industry. Like you've been, I would say, almost like radically transparent about the business uh, when it comes to assisting other writers of color. Can you Can you talk about why that's important for you? Yeah. Um, and I would say, you know, of course, you are very much that same person in the music industry, if not more. The amount of calls you get, I get to see <laughs> firsthand from every aspect of the business that people want to ask you about. Um, and then their personal lives as well, you know, while they're at it. Uh, and you're always so generous with that. You know, for me, with writing, one is because when I started writing, I didn't have, you know, a journalism degree or even like an English lit degree. I have a political science degree. Mm -hmm. And the business of writing was a thing I had to find on my own. And I right. had to find it as a black woman, which is different. You know, the, the, the access is different. The, you know, you don't have the introductions. You don't have that kind of immediate believability of your words, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I built it and I put a lot of work into building it. And I really do view the greater writing world as like my workspace and my coworkers. And I want more black coworkers, you know? Yes. I want people to thrive. It means so much to what we're all able to do. And then also as a writer, I'm inspired by writers, right? That's why I write because first I loved reading because I loved words. And the people who come into this space who are able to come in and share stories and write in ways that we haven't seen before inspire me every single day. And I want to feed that. I want to feed that by making it easier for more people to, to come into writing and stay there and pay yeah. their bills there. And so many black writers and brown writers and disabled writers quit writing because they can't get by doing it because there are too many barriers in front of them. And I want to change that because these stories matter. It matters not only for me as someone who doesn't want to be the only black person at conferences. Mm -hmm. um, it matters to everyone who wants to be seen and heard, who wants their stories shared, who wants to understand why the world works the way it works, you know? Um, it's who wants to be inspired, who wants to laugh, who wants all these things that, that writing can bring. Um, it really matters. And so I'm always excited to be able to share what I've learned mm -hmm. um, and continue to learn with other people. Yeah, I love that. I love that about you. Um, on that note, what are some books that you have recently read that you've loved and books that you're excited about? Well, you've been here as I've been making my way through the Broken Earth series, which I almost feel embarrassed to say that I hadn't read yet um you it's know i had good. read of course some of um, nk jemison's short stories yes i'm loving it i am so close to being done with the second one um Amazing. i was actually just listening further um today and um really 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 deeply enjoying it another book actually i have here um that i loved do i have it here 
do I have it here? Maybe I have it somewhere else. Um, was, um, yeah, I don't have it here. It was um, by, um, oh gosh, you know me and names left. Um, <laughs> Betsy Gaines comment her book, um, True West. Oh yeah. Which you were there as I was reading it and mm -hmm. continuously like being like, you won't believe this. Also this. And what about this? A really, really good book. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm a huge fan of, she was, um, of her writing and her work. She was someone you referenced in, in Mediocre, yes? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. She was a huge part of Mediocre. If you like that Buffalo Bill chapter mm -hmm. um, and the Bundy Brothers chapter, please look up her work. Um, she was a big contributor to a lot of the information that went into that book, but also she's really at the forefront of telling true stories about the West, warts and all, and mm -hmm. looking at the roots of the rising um, white nationalism and um, violence, you know, extremism mm -hmm. uh, throughout the West mm -hmm. and in the history of that. And uh, so this book, um, True West, look, is looking at, you know, the mythology around West, Westerns, you know, that, that whole idea and how these mythologies have contributed to the extremism that we're seeing and what that extremism looks like and the real risk uh, that we're at that, you know, it doesn't make headlines. And of course, living in the West as we do, yeah. um, just on the other side of, you know, the mountains from some of the largest extremist groups in the country. Yeah. And recognizing that it is never reported, even in our local news you know, that we mm -hmm. have heavily armed militias gearing up for a race war. Yeah. Um, and it's growing and we don't talk about it and we don't talk about why. And she's really doing important work around that. So that was a book that I poured through, loved, you know, messaged her multiple times mm -hmm. um, that it, that I loved it slash it was keeping me up at night and making it yes. hard for me to be able to sleep. <laughs> It's wild to realize, like, especially in, in a city like Seattle, like how much we're in a bubble. And it's almost like once you just leave the city limits, it's like another country, you know? <laughs> right. And we're in a bubble surrounded by extremism. Yeah. You know, and it's here. And so that's the thing, too. I think you can think you're in a bubble, uh, mm -hmm. but those elements also are here. Absolutely. You yeah. know? Like we have people here who are parts of those groups who live in Seattle, who mm -hmm. live in our suburbs, who have guns. And we saw that, we saw that in 2020 with the yeah. chop, right? We saw yeah. these, these white men showing up with their big trucks with American flags at the back and their semi-automatic rifles on their shoulders, mm -hmm. eagerly mm -hmm. hoping that they would have an excuse to shoot the people that were you know, trying to fight for black lives. And that was right there at the moment's notice, ready to be called up. This is, you know, a real threat. And it's a threat that, you know, our oppressors know they can call up. It's something that, that Donald Trump gleefully called up and nurtured time and time again. I was just going to bring that up with the, um, the Capitol when they tried to when they tried to overturn the the election and took mm -hmm. over like mm -hmm. that there was people from Seattle there was cops from Seattle like in the middle of that you know right right and he spent yeah. months stoking that feeding that recruiting for that 
because mm-hmm. he really honestly thought it would be enough to actually take over the country. And one day it may well be. Yeah. Whew. Scary, scary thoughts, scary times. Um, any other any other books you're excited about while we're talking about books? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, here's the problem. You, you know me, love. You and me, we go on a date. Yes. And then we go to a bookstore. And then yes. I buy a lot of books, <laughs> a lot of books. And so asking what books I'm excited about, I mean, yeah. have I ever bought less than five books at the bookstore? Not since our house fire. Yeah. Yeah. And, that, I that, and that's a real thing, y'all. Like we lost all of our entire book collection in the house fire of 2020. So these bookstore runs have been both, both for new books, but also like replenishing like all of our, you know, classics from our life that we've loved, you know, where we don't have a copy of anymore, you know? Absolutely. This is one actually I really do. You know, I think when I picked it up, I was like, I I remember I had you read the, uh, the inside thing of it multiple times. I was like, no, I don't think you read it close enough. Read it again. It's really interesting. What's the author's name again? Um, Zaina Arafat. Um, It's a memoir of a Palestinian American um, queer woman. I remember reading uh, that. And yeah. it's not a memoir. It's like a fiction. Sorry. Uh-huh, um, uh-huh. And uh, it just seems so deeply interesting. It's called, you and the title, You Exist Too Much. You Exist Too Much. That is a hard title. Right, right, yeah. right. So that's one that like, when I have a little time, I'm like, that's why part of why it's here, right? Yeah, yeah. I love that. Um, since we are, since we are on the, you know, the dawn of the book release, um, can you talk about why first week sales are important in 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 the publishing world yeah you know all right let first let me let me start by saying the new york times bestseller list is whack in mm-hmm. ways that a lot of people don't get mm-hmm. and it's not actually really based on bestsellers like that's part of the equation but they have a secret formula that they don't talk about that studies have shown is inherently racist yeah. um but that being said because most people don't know it people really do look toward that list um, for what they're going to buy, not only individuals, but mm-hmm. bookstores, libraries. So making that bestseller list is really, really huge for the success of a book. And your best chance at making it is the first week. Right. Um, because all pre-sales count towards that first week's sales. So mm-hmm. really getting the word out, um, you know, if you were like, I might buy it now, might buy it later buy it now. And, yeah, and yeah. I say this for any, any author that you really want to support, especially right. an author that, you know, isn't a guaranteed top bestseller um, for any black and brown author, because mm-hmm. even if their books have proven themselves, you have to prove yourself every single time to book buyers and mm-hmm. to libraries. Um, they don't, they don't come excited for your books, you know, and you really do have to prove it and show it. And so one of the best ways you can support you know, uh, an author when their book comes out is to buy that book as soon as possible, buy it before it comes out or that first week, if at Mm -hmm. all possible. And those, those all increase the chance of getting to that list. And that list increases the chance that bookstores around the country and libraries around the country, um, and beyond will buy the book and carry it in stores because people can't buy it if they don't know it exists because it's not on any shelves, you know? That's the truth. Yeah. And uh, in support of this first week, you have a whole tour coming up. I'm very excited about. I'm going to be joining you on it. Um, 
any any cities and spots you're excited about? I got the dates in front of me. I could read them out if you want, mm-hmm. you know. I'm excited about all of them. I think I do have, I don't have the dates memorized, but I do have all the cities memorized. I really hope everyone comes. Um, don't miss those stops. Don't miss the DC stop. Yeah. Yeah. Don't miss the DC stop. Um, they're going to be really fun. Um, we're trying our best to make things as safe as we can as well. And I do have now, if you go to the, to my website to where um, you can pre-order I'll have the page linked up underneath the episode yeah. for people. Okay. So you can, if, you can, if you, you go can click there, directly there is to a that link site. For mm-hmm. an accessibility page. And it's just a spreadsheet where we went to every single venue and asked, you know, what are what what is the accessibility look like and what is your COVID safety look like? So that you can make an informed decision because we really do want people to come, but we want them to feel comfortable and safe and confident. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we do have a couple of virtual events as well for people who are like, hey, now's not the time for me to be around people. Um, but I am so excited. I, you know, writing is really solitary. Yeah. <laughs> this book project has been more communal than anything else I've worked on. But, you know, even when it came time to get down and be like, put pen to paper, you saw me. I was in I was in my office from morning mm-hmm. till very, very late at night every single That's day. Right. Um, getting more and more pale and yellow. Um, <laughs> Seattle problems to yo. the to the current yellow that I'm rocking right now. <laughs> um, and it's fun to see people and connect with people. And the yeah. com- I'm excited about the conversation set up with some really amazing people. Some I haven't met yet. Some I know and love. Mm-hmm. And um, and I'm I'm glad so glad to have you with me. Not only to like I love sharing experiences with you, but you also know I kind of I really hate flying. Yeah. And um I don't know. Like I like sitting next to you. I like being able to lean into you on that plane. So like it too. Yeah. I like it too. So people should come too because they they get to meet you. <laughs> right? If I'm not hiding that day, I'll be the one wearing a mask. <laughs> Um, so yeah, January 30th in Brooklyn, uh the 31st in DC, February 1st in Baltimore the second in Atlanta, the fourth in Detroit, the fifth in Toronto, and then we'll be back in Seattle on the eighth and ninth. I'll be hosting a conversation with you at Third Place Books, Lake Forest Park, aka the bookstore right by Octavia Butler's old house, and then a big event on the ninth at Seattle Town Hall. So we'll have all that linked up though underneath this episode. Um, What else was I going to ask you? Oh yeah. For people who listen to this podcast and for uh, people who just know about, you know, my music or whatever, there's so much overlap <laughs> in the book that I just kind of wanted to direct people to. So, um, yeah, second episode of this podcast, we had Derek Dizon and you talk about Derek's parents in the book, uh, his mother actually, which led to the birth of API Chaya. Do you want to talk about that at all? Or, um, yeah, I, you know, I, 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 it's, it feels almost bad to summarize around such tragic I know, events, I know. but I will say, you know, it, one thing I will say for people who pick up the book and they read about what happened mm-hmm. to, um, Susanna Rimrata and to her friends, including Phoebe Dazon. Yes. And it's a gutting and heartbreaking story. And you realize API Chaya, this amazing organization that rose from that. Then go to your podcast and listen to that episode and and realize another amazing Mm -hmm. person living, you know, a living testament to 
the memory of his mother's love and um and what he's been able to do with that as well i think that that's an amazing important you know healing experience to be able to have yeah and then my my guest from last week was also is also in the book nikita oliver talks about uh the work that they're doing with creative justice, I believe, and, and just work as an artist and an abolitionist. The artist chapter is beautiful. Um, you got invincible and complex movements in there. And my friend DJ Ian Head. And that was that was that was such an amazing story to me because I've been friends with Ian and made music with him for close to 20 years. And I learned things about his life from your interview that I never knew, you know, about particularly about his work in prisons. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. You know, it was interesting because you had introduced me to Ian for this conversation. I, you know, had seen Ian in places, but I hadn't really known him the way you do, of course. Mm-hmm. And you were like, you should talk to Ian because you had remembered the work he'd done around Stop and Frisk, which we do talk yeah. about. Yeah. Um, and, you know, his important work on that case um, but what he wanted to talk about was the work that he had been doing um, in prisons to help empower people who were incarcerated to advocate for themselves while in prison. And um, like that work was something that you had, you didn't know he had done. And it was so fun actually for you to read that part because you were emotional about it yeah. and you know, this amazing things that you're very, very humble friend. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I didn't told you. That. <laughs> it's true, and the and there's a quote from Ian from the book that just always sticks with me. When you asked him um, how he got into organizing, and he talked about all the the artists that he was listening to, the hip hop artists. Do you, do you want to retell that that part of it? Yeah, um, he. Oh, here. Let me see if I can just grab it real quick so that I can actually, <laughs> you know, um, have what he said. So this is my. This would be the abolition chapter. Yeah. And, uh, oh, that's the very first chapter um, of the book. <laughs> and he's, there he is. And yeah, he said, I was listening to hip hop and hearing black people talk about life experiences that are definitely different than mine, especially when it comes to law enforcement, what's happening with these prisons. And I believed those stories. And I'm not saying I'm special for that because everyone should believe those stories, but more that I feel like so many white people question and don't want to believe those stories unless there's three reams of data backing them up or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's just so profound to me. He's like, I listen and I believe them. And that led to an entire life of action. Like that's, it's so amazing. you know. Right. And the power of art, right? Mm-hmm. The power of storytelling, the power of hip hop to do that. Right, right. Yeah, so amazing. What are what are some of the things that you hope people get the most from from this book and from your life? I really, you know, I think it depends on who's reading it, right? I'm always yeah. kind of keeping in mind of, you know, who. Um, I hope that BIPOCs, especially Black people, right? Mm-hmm. I'm always thinking of Black women when I write. Right. Will feel seen, represented, you know, um, and will feel like their stories are worth telling. I hope that if they see echoes of their lives and what they want to accomplish or what they are accomplishing, they'll realize that what that they matter in that really real way, you know, that someone deserves to write a book about them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that they aren't alone, you know. And I hope in general people feel inspired 
that people do feel connected, that people feel hopeful, that people read the book and start looking around in their communities, their workplaces and say, well, let's get started. You know, where, where can I be a part of this? Or where is this important work being done? And I, where can I support it? You know, yeah. and I want that. I want it to feel doable. There's, it's so, in a world that feels so brutal and problems that seem so large, you know, we're in a genocide right now. You know, we right. are witnessing a genocide being paid for with our own tax dollars. Mm-hmm. And to say it's demoralizing is a gross oversimplification mm-hmm. of the terror and horror and that, you know, so many of us are feeling around this and the hopelessness that we're mm-hmm. feeling around this. Mm-hmm. And as we work to end that, as we continue to speak out, also recognizing what we can do and how important it is to reaffirm the value and the humanity of BIPOC populations and to look for systemic harm where we are and fight that as well. And know that we can, there's something about in these times being able to say, I did this thing today and there's a measurable difference in how someone moves through the world because I was able to do that. Even if that person is just yourself, you know, mm-hmm. um, it is important. It, it is really vital and it's what gets us through and gives us the strength to continue these really big hard fights that we're in. Yeah. Yeah. You got to start where you're at and yeah. And do the best you can, you know, and and connect. Like that's yeah, that's real. I know you're, I know you're in the very very early stages of, of writing what's next. Do, do you want to talk about about that at all? Like what's what's coming up for you after yeah, after this yeah. book tour, promoting a book and and it's, it's gonna be it's gonna be some time, but but. What are you what are you looking forward to after after this book is, you know, does its thing in the world? I mean, I'm looking forward to us traveling again. Yes. Us getting some time out of the country. We've talked about that. But for writing, I'm looking forward to being a student of writing again. Amazing. I'm looking forward to dabbling with fiction. And I've talked about this for years, but I'm actually like part of a class that I'm sitting in on and started, you know, writing things out and really excited to be able to take the time and energy and actually this office is a part of that plan as well because when you're writing when you're trying to stretch into new creative ways interruption is a thing that can really you know damage progress that you're in Mm -hmm. um and so yeah um excited about being a newbie in a writing space (laughs) and writing some really bad first drafts and <laughs> try, you know, making them better and studying yeah. and trying new things. And, you know, I love writing. I love writing. And I have since I was a very, very little girl. Mm-hmm. And when you spend years and years documenting violent white supremacy, it can take a toll. Absolutely. And part of what put that seed in me, and I don't know if we really talked about it, Mm. Um, do you remember when I was doing, um, I did that speaker series and I sat with Sonia Renee Taylor? Yeah, that was a beautiful event. Yeah. It was a beautiful event. And we talked and I, it was like this epiphany when she was talking about her move to New Zealand mm-hmm. and doing this thing for herself that a lot of people said that she shouldn't do, that people tried to guilt her and, um, about doing because of course, you know, black women are meant to be consumed um, and not meant to 
live for themselves or care for themselves. They're supposed to care for others Mm -hmm. and produce for others. And realizing in that conversation with her, how little of my writing, this love, this passion I had, and this talent I have went towards my own enjoyment of writing Mm. and towards something entertaining and joyful for community. How much of it was in this place of emergency and struggle and just realizing I didn't want to give white supremacy any more of that. Like I actually felt kind of ashamed, like embarrassed because Mm. I'm always advising, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, black people and black women in particular to care for themselves and to remember that you're a part of what we're fighting for. That's right. And this talent, this art form that I love so deeply for years and years, I had just been pouring it, you know, into the fight against white supremacy and Mm -hmm. whiteness doesn't deserve it, you Mm -hmm. know? Mm-hmm. Um, and not to say I, I have no regret about my books. I love my books. They're beautiful. And this one, I would say, also was a refutation of it, right? Saying I'm going to spend years actually in community yeah. and I'm going to put their, these beautiful stories and people in this space um, was a direct refutation of this idea that I'm only here to right. um, struggle in this work. And now the further step even further is I get to actually just enjoy writing. Yeah. I get to do the things that feed my like creative soul. Um, I'm excited about it. I'm so excited to see and hear and read it. And yeah, I'm so excited about it. And also um, watching you write this book, cause I got to have a, a first row seat to both mediocre and this book, Be a Revolution. And with this one, I feel like it just seemed like you were so restored from all of the conversations you were having. And writing a book is hard, but I felt like you were easier with yourself on the process this time around, you know? Yeah. Shout out to my amazing therapist, honestly, yeah, who helped me. Capitalism is a mind fuck, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. And I would have these urges. I remember asking if something was wrong that I couldn't force myself to work all night like I used to, you know, that I couldn't push when I was tired, that I wanted to reserve evening with you and with the boys um and my therapist just being like well this is kind of what happens when you start to heal is you're listening now to the things you should have been listening to for a while and you don't have the capacity to harm yourself in service of this work anymore and embracing that because i really wanted to fight it i was almost hoping my therapist would tell me ways to get around that you know yeah embracing that letting go of this idea that um I, that, you know, how hard I worked would be externally decided, um, that this book was going to be done when the book was going to be done, that I was going to care for myself and care for my family and stay connected, um, was something that I've never had in writing Mm. as an adult for a career. And for anyone who's listening, who's written a book, I think this will be recognizable. I, most writers I know you know, you fall apart in those final days and you're not sleeping and you're barely eating and you're eating junk food and you're not seeing anyone. And, you know, you're wearing the same clothes for multiple days in a (laughs) row. And uh, you saw that with mediocre, you know, you saw, you know, the multiple days without sleep. I was Um, delivering, delivering food and then leaving. (laughs) Exactly. 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 And this was not going to be that I wasn't Mm -hmm. going to, um, 
harm myself and my family and my connection to people that I love for this. And I do think the book is better for it because it also mm. allowed me to not be in this space of panic and exhaustion. And I could also say things like, I don't think this chapter is ready yet and I'm going to take more time, even if, you know, I have to have a difficult conversation with my editor and my publisher. And, you know, of course, had having a really supportive editor means a lot. And I absolutely did. Yeah. But, you know, you still get scared. You don't want to say, I'm not going to, you know, I don't, I'm not ready to turn that in yet. Mm -hmm. And usually in the past, that part of me, that overachieving part of me that had been shaped by capitalism would have just been like, get it, get it good enough. You know, mm -hmm. and instead of saying, no, I'm not ready, you know, and, yeah. and it was lovely to be able to do that. And I think that the book benefited from it. Yeah, that's that's life game right there. For real. <laughs> I thought of a question that I don't know if anyone else is going to ask you. Um, and I'll preface it with when I was at Clarion West and when I was, you know, writing more sci fi stories uh, regularly, my stories would have particular soundtracks. I could go back to certain songs and it would put me in the mindset of the story. Um, I've noticed that you have music playing in your office a lot. What would you say the soundtrack was for Be A Revolution? Yeah, you know, this was actually, I would say that music played a bigger part in my being able to work this time around mm -hmm. um, than in the past. Part of it honestly was, I think, you know, having ADHD, having anxiety disorder, Mm -hmm. um there were times where i didn't want to be in my head and you know like i i'm really lyrically connected to music yeah and so in the past when i didn't when my anxiety was really ratcheted up and i didn't have tools to deal with it i actually couldn't listen to music mm -hmm. because it would pull me into my head and my head wasn't a safe place to be in mm -hmm. and so often around deadlines i couldn't listen to music being in a space where i was more centered music then could set a mood for me and mm -hmm. Um, and so it's, it was interesting, like looking back over the year and what I listened to the most, it was mood. It was real mood. So, you mm -hmm. know, you would think I was trying to seduce myself in my office <laughs> every day, you know, uh, um, that's hilarious. <laughs> you know, a lot of Moses Sumney, a lot of hiatus coyote, mm -hmm. um, you know, Radiohead, of course, is always going to be a part of my Mm -hmm. life and it you know it's still in those in the top ones but you would sit there and be like where where are the candles what do you you know yeah. um as 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 you once famous, famously said that's sexy time music <laughs> that's right um, <laughs> i don't know if it's famously if it's just between you and me <laughs> well it, it's famously when i insist on bringing it up all the time <laughs> okay <laughs> that's funny <laughs> Uh, uh, but you know, it was so, and it was really chill and it got me in this space of flow mm -hmm. and, you know, allowed my brain to just keep going. And I would find myself like the rhythm mattered more. It was less, it was less about lyrics and it was like, what's the rhythm of this? Yeah. Does it keep me working? Does it keep me feeling warm and safe and relaxed yeah. and, uh, absolutely, you know, dove into more new music to me new to me mm -hmm. this year as i was just going you know let's see what else can you know get me in this mood something about getting like a rhythm where you're just you don't even realize you're moving to it yeah. while you're typing can really help get flow going you know and especially from 
you know, these really kind of creative sounds that are floating in the background and you're hearing them, but not hearing them. And so you'd be like, oh, that's, you know, interesting. Mm -hmm. And I would like, like a song and then get back to, you know, to going. So music was always on, um, on repeat throughout. And actually I, you know, do that. I I use this program called Focus Me. Oh, Focus Me was huge for you during this. Huge, 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 huge. And if you have, Talk about what it is for people that don't know. Yeah. And if you have ADHD or just you're yeah. struggling to like be creative or get the thing done and you're trying to work from home, uh, Focus Me is like, is this work sharing program and it's online and it's really affordable. It's like $6 a month. I think you can do it free, but it's then limited how often you do it. I do $6 a month mm-hmm. and you basically sign up for blocks of time, 25 minutes, 50 minutes or 90 minutes. And you're paired up with someone and you're sharing a screen kind of like you and I are right now, mm-hmm. you introduce what you're going to do for the block of time and then you do it and you stop talking to that person. You do the work. And then at the end you talk about what you did yeah. and then you can do another one. And for some people at first I was like, is this going to be weird and creepy? Uh, and it's not, it's fascinating and wonderful. You have someone waiting on you. You're not going to be late. You're going to do the work. They can mm-hmm. see you. You know, mm-hmm. so you're going to do work and you're going to do the thing that you said you were going to do and you get an insight into what other people do. And there's wild, like I'll always remember one time I was paired up with someone who was a card shark and they were on a, like one of those treadmill desks, uh-huh. walking with headphones on, smoking mm-hmm. an e-cigarette and memorizing cards. Wow. <laughs> and I was like, this is wild. I would like, yeah. look up and be like, all right, you know, like car sharks got to work too. Right. And, uh, and it was really fun and actually made some friends, but mm-hmm. I would just sign up for these sessions over and over and over and over. Yeah. And, you know, and it forces you to take a break in between. So you're not overworking. And, but it was really funny because what brought it up was, you know, the music in the beginning, you know, I would mute usually, but in the beginning I introduced people be like, man, I love your music. I got that compliment all the time. Some people would ask me, please don't mute. I just want to hear your music in oh, the wow. background oh, while wow. you're working, you know? Um, so it was, it's good working music. Oh, you were, you were DJing for focus mate. <laughs> That's amazing. I didn't I actually didn't realize that part of it. Yeah. Yeah. People would ask. And the only, the only time, reason why I'd be hesitant is because I bought this really, you, you know, something, you know, I like a cute thing, right? Uh-huh. So <laughs> I bought a keyboard that's really clicky because yes. the keys look cute yes. and it's so loud. I'm like, you're, you're going to be so annoyed if yeah. you, if I unmute, cause all you're going to hear is yeah yeah that's funny um yeah focus may seems like the next level of like the coffee shop office like the digital version of it you know right and and you know it really does matter when you're when you have adhd you you're jumping from hyper focus to hyper focus a lot and that's not a way to work because you can't turn hyper focus on uh Mm -hmm. and so when it's on then too and you're going with it you burn out Mm-hmm. And so this stops you from burning out. You know, you can make a list of different things you're doing. You have a that enough distraction to keep going. Cause I think, you know, a lot of people with ADHD, like me, you need a little bit of distraction. Yeah. Um, you need something else happening. And then you also get to meet people. And when you're working at home, yeah, just being able to meet someone different because it's people all over the world. So mm-hmm. I'd be talking to some people and it's, you know, 3 p.m. where I am and it's the middle of the night where they are. Yeah. Uh, one guy I talked to it was really interesting because he was on this island, like off, off 
in between the U- U.S. and Europe, mm-hmm. the small island, and it, 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 that time of year it never got dark, and so it was three o'clock in the morning wow. where he was. And he actually afterwards, I you know was talking. He was like, "It's three in the morning," and I was like, "Really?" He's huh. like, "It doesn't get dark here." And he took his camera and actually showed me and like out over the water because you know he just lives on this little island, yeah. and it was like the middle of the day, and it was a gorgeous space. But it was so fun to get to see yeah. the other side of the world, you know, after finishing some some work um so it was you know stuff like that is always it's it's a lot of fun that's so wild and i think it really helped you focus just from you know my observer point of view like you know because you didn't have a office out of the house for any of the book like you were mm-hmm. writing in the house but like we'd be talking you'd be like oh i got a focus make session i gotta go and it like it it really seemed to like keep you on task in a way that nothing in my life actually keeps me on task right now. <laughs> it really did. You know, it, it kept me on task and it kept people out of my office. It did. You know, people yeah. would walk in and be like, oh, oh, you're except for mom, you know, yeah. because nothing will stop mom. Right. <laughs> it always looked like you were on a call and we didn't want to interrupt. Yeah. I know. I love it. Yeah. I wasn't about to correct you. Yeah. Like, Yo, the secret, the secret ingredient, y'all, to work at home, <laughs> focus mate. Uh, love, this has been such a joy and a pleasure. Uh, interviewing your best friend, interviewing the main person that you spend like every day in your life with is is always like, I don't know how this is going to go, but I think it went well. <laughs> yeah. And people yeah. just get to watch me make googly eyes at you. Right. right. No, I, think, I think we were good. It wasn't a lot of googly <laughs> eyes this time. Um, is there anything else you want to leave with the people before we before we say goodbye? Oh, I, don't, I mean, you know, I would just say free palestine like keep keep talking mm-hmm. about it keep talking about it the more we talk about it the more it gives other people courage to talk about it That's right. the more you, opportunity you have to connect with other people who truly believe in justice and liberation our our safety is tied together and we're learning right now who is truly invested in liberation and who isn't and so that can be really heartbreaking on one end but it's also really affirming on the other to know that i have built and deepened connections with people that I know will be here with me in this struggle for the long haul. And so we have to keep doing this. And even if it feels hopeless, this work is vital. It's vital. Even if it doesn't seem like we get these bombs to stop dropping every time we talk about it, Mm -hmm. we are opening people's eyes to the reality of our systems, the reality of capitalism, of colonization. Right. And that, you know, people don't unlearn that. So it's worth it. It matters. Yes. And we have to keep doing it. And we have to also stay aware of the real progress we're making that people are trying to erase that that our systems are trying to erase and make it seem like we're not doing it. So um, yeah, keep speaking up for free Palestine, keep speaking up for ceasefire, keep talking about colonization, you know, keep talking about capitalism. Mm -hmm. And thank you for all of you who have been doing so and connect with others and spend time with others who also believe in this and are fighting for this and share joy and laughter with each other as well and make time for that. Absolutely. It's so vital. I think that's my favorite thing about going to protests is just being with other people that, that are with you, you know, and like people don't get how, how affirming and beautiful (sighs) and life giving the protests actually are. Even at times when they seem gutting, like you're surrounded by people Mm-hmm. who are in this fight with you and people yeah. are 
you know, hugging and just giving loving looks at each other and, Mm -hmm. you know, helping people be able to have access in the spaces. And it's just a really beautiful thing. I recommend if there is a protest happening in your area, go, please go. You'll love it. It will, it will give you so much. Yes, absolutely. I know you got another call. So, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, thank you. Thank you for everything, Joma, so much. Love you. And, uh, yeah, go get that book, y'all. Yeah. And we'll talk All to right. you soon. This is the Worldwide Love you, honey. I'll see you at home. <laughs> I want to thank my love, Ijoma Olua, one more time for her time, her stories, and for putting this book into the world. Be a revolution. Once again, we got the information for how to get this book and where to see us in person. Linked up in the description of this episode. Thank you again to everyone who supports us here on the Substack, on the Worldwide Underground. We appreciate you all so much. I'll be back with you in one week, for real this time. I can say that with confidence because I pre-recorded. Malkia Devich Cyril is going to be my guest next week. We're going to be talking about media justice and a whole lot more. Till then... See you out here in the streets. Free Palestine. And be a revolution. All day. Peace.